0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant Christ Center Church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. We're going to look at a very, very um, notable passage of Scripture um, this morning, Isaiah chapter nine, um, verses one through seven. Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven kick off this Advent season, man. Remember, the the first Advent, he came to deal with sin. He came to deal with sin. The beauty about the second Advent, which is so prevalent, it it is so pertinent to where we are now, is that he's coming back to deal with our suffering and our pain. And so we could fix our eyes and our hearts on Christ, When we look at this passage, we're just going to walk through it today. And I encourage you to just focus on what the Lord has to say to us today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Here's what it says. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, When he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's the verse that you know. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, And this describes his government. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. My sermon title this morning is Gloom to Glory. Gloom to Glory. Let us pray. God, we thank you yet again, Father, for allowing us to just be here today and for for allowing us to worship through the studying of your word. God, I just pray that during this time and during this season, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open, that we would see like we've never seen before, God, that we would see you, God, in all of your glory and all of your splendor. And so, Father, I pray that we would fixate our gaze on you this morning, God, that, that no matter what has happened to us, For the previous 11 months of the year, God, I pray that we would finish strong, God. I pray that that for all the pain, the turmoil, the uncertainty that we've gone through, God, I pray that you would shine the light on us this morning, God. I pray that we would see the hope that is in you. And so, Father, we just thank you today that you've allowed us to gather. I thank you today, God, that you've kept, kept us safe and that we're in good health today, God, that we are able to worship, that we're free to worship. And so, Father, we don't take it for granted today. We, we pray today, God, that you would allow us to engage with all that we are today, God, with our minds, with our body, with our spirits, Lord, that we would not just listen to a sermon, God, but that we would respond with our spirit, God. And ultimately, Father, I pray that your son Jesus... Your son, Christ, will be lifted up today. I pray that we would see him, God, in all of his glory and splendor and majesty today. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated in the Lord's house. In order for us to fully appreciate the story, the passage that we've just read, we need to first put it in its proper context. God at this point, has sent the prophet Isaiah to speak to the king of Judah by speaking, he's speaking directly to the king of Judah, a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah during this particular time and during this particular period. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz to tell him that although things appear extremely bleak right now, all he needs to do as king of Israel is trust God. All he needs to do is trust God by obeying the word of the Lord, and what appears that might happen will not happen. What you think is going to happen to you because of everything that you see with your eyes is not going to happen. And so what is he afraid of? What does he think is going to happen to him? Well, there is a foreign nation that is creeping up on them and slowly making headway toward Jerusalem. This 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 uh, this this nation called Assyria is headed toward Jerusalem and they are coming to take over and destroy the people of God. And so. Uh, Ahaz is having to deal with this. What do I do as the king wanting to protect my people and protect myself? What am I supposed to do when I'm in this predicament where danger uh, is? danger is approaching me. And so Ahaz has a couple of options. Number one, he can become a part of this coalition with Aram and Israel where they were forming this coalition to fight against Assyria. Well that's not an option for King Ahaz. He doesn't want to team up with them. The other option, which he thinks is the wise thing to do, is for him to make peace with the king of Assyria before the king of Assyria gets there and he can come into partnership with the king of Assyria and everything will be alright. The people will be saved he himself will be saved and the danger will be far away from them because Assyria will now be their partner and so God wants to send a word to King Ahaz by the way of the prophet Isaiah and here's what he wants him to know he does not want him to become a partner with darkness he does not want him to partner with darkness even though that may bring him some temporary comfort what he wants him to do is trust God and God is telling Ahaz through Isaiah that if you trust me I will defend you and I will fight for you you don't have to get out of character you don't have to do something that you know I don't want you to do long as you don't partner with darkness and as long as you trust me everything will be all right however the caveat is this if you refuse my instruction there will be grave consequences for you and for the people of God here's the thing whenever leadership is bad it will have an effect on the people So the leadership goes, so the people goes. And so if if Ahaz responds in faith to the word of the Lord, nothing would happen to him, nothing would happen to the people of God, regardless of what it looked like. And so Isaiah is trying to summon Ahaz to trust the Lord in spite of what he sees. He has to stand firm in trusting God but just like us, he fails to heed the commands and to trust God. And because of that, everything that the prophet Isaiah is saying that's going to happen as it relates to the impending judgment is going to happen. It's going to happen to him and it's going to happen to God's people because of Ahaz's disobedience. And so God who the people who, who the people should have trusted is now going to use a foreign power to break down his own people and bring them to nothing. God is going to use the foreign enemy as an instrument to discipline his own people The people at this point, they got so desperate because of what they feared was going to happen to them. They look past God and they start acquiring about mediums. They went after spiritists and witches. They didn't even want to trust God. That seemed like that was a little too hard to do because if I trust God... He's going to ask me to do something that I don't really want to do. So I would rather go and hear what a spiritist says. I would rather go listen and take advice from somebody who calls themselves spiritual but not religious. I would rather go get my advice from the spiritist and from the mediums. I would rather do that than, 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 than go trust in God. I would rather look elsewhere. Be careful when you're more tempted to get advice from the world than you are from God and so here's what happens look at their predicament I want you to look back right before chapter 9 and I want you to see the predicament of the people of God because they trusted in witches here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 8 verses 21 through 22 would you look at what this got them when they did not listen to God Isaiah chapter 8 verses 21 through 22 says this they will wander through the land dejected and hungry when they are famished they will become enraged and looking up Upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. They look for guidance from the occult, and it left them worse off than they were before they went in and, and, and inquired of the occult. So, so, so they don't trust God. They go look to the, spiritual, the spiritualists. The spiritualist leaves them in a worse condition than they were before because it causes spiritual damage. Whenever you listen to somebody else, whenever you listen to other uh, uh, wise counselors of the age, before you listen to God, it gives you more spiritual damage than you had before. And so what, what, what they see now is this emptiness and this destruction. They didn't seek the Lord. They sought other sources. And here's what happens. When you look past God and you seek other sources for wisdom and for advice, and you realize that it leaves you emptier than you were before, it drives you to anger and it drives you to rage. It leads to more frustration because they don't have the answers. And so we can't look to solve the world's problems with the world's solutions. We have to look to God's solutions to solve the world's problems and so they didn't do this and so they got frustrated the text says that they cursed their king and their God they got upset when they looked past God and they looked to the earthly leaders and they had no answers for them and all it did for the people of God was it brought about more darkness light for our darkness must come from outside of ourselves if it is to come at all if you are looking for light to come into your life it cannot come from within ourselves it has to come from an outside source which is God 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 is the only one that can bring light into our darkness and so here's what I want you to notice here's what I want you to know about the people of God if you read throughout the storyline of Scripture in the Old Testament here's what you will always see the people mess up and God comes to the rescue People mess up, God has grace. The people mess up, God has mercy. And what you'll see all throughout the storyline of Scripture is grace. You will see a thread of grace for God's people. There's a thread of grace that runs through the Scripture. The people can't get right even when they want to, and God still has grace and forgiveness for the people of God. But when we read the Bible, we look at them side-eyed like, you big dummies, you can't listen to God, you in the wilderness that long, and that's just like our own lives. That's just like our own lives. But what you'll notice about your life is the same thing you see in the Old Testament. You see the thread of God's grace going all through your story. For every time you were disobedient and got yourself in some mess, here comes God's grace getting your butt out of something that you got yourself in. Every time you get yourself in a crazy relationship, here comes the thread of God's grace causing them to break up with you, and now you out of the situation that you got yourself in. Every time you get yourself in a situation, you leave one job, to go to another job. This job is going to be better for me. Here's God's grace. When you got frustrated and realized it wasn't a job, it was actually you, God's grace comes through and brings you peace right where you are. If we look at the story of our own lives, all we will see is the thread of God's grace and that should only make us worship God. It runs through all of our lives. Even in this present climate, where we're desperately looking For better leadership and looking to science to solve our problems, let us remember that those things will never be able to solve our greatest problem that has brought about all of the evil and suffering in the world the problem of sin. And so there's only one. That has solved that problem. God himself had to come in and solve the sin problem for us. And so this text is so pertinent and so germane to where we are in the world today. It points us to the way in which God has brought about hope, joy and peace to the world. That if we are looking for hope, joy and peace uh, uh, in the present, then this will teach us that it is not found in perfect circumstances. It is not found in perfect circumstances, but it is found in a perfect person. So I think that what we will find is that sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. That God uses the most dire of circumstances not to punish us ultimately, but sometimes God uses these types of things to purify us. That that, that God at some point will burn away everything that is worthless in in our lives. And God is not doing it to be mean, but God is burning away everything that is worthless and fleeting so that our our attention can be back on him. That that God is not trying to punish us, but God is trying to get our attention. That at some point we'll snap out of it and realize that our only hope is in him. That that at some point we, we won't think that an election will solve all of our problems. That, 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 that we might feel a sense of relief now, but, but soon, six months from now, a year from now, we'll be complaining about something else. And all that is doing is serving to remind us that our hope should be in God. Our hope for our job should be in God. Our hope for our health should be in God. Our hope for our spouses should be in God. Our hope for our church should be in God, not in ourselves and not in other earthly arenas. It should be in God and in God alone. So when every human attempt To bring light until the world has failed, God then brings light. Not because he has to, but God does it because of his grace. That, That every time God came to your rescue, it wasn't because you deserved it. It wasn't because you prayed hard enough. It was God's sheer grace and mercy in your life. We are saved surely because of the grace of God. Due to no goodness of our own, we don't deserve God's salvation, but God, by his grace and his mercy, He shined his light upon us and we are saved, but it's by his grace. And the greatest thing that this text today will teach us is that God can and God will intervene even in the darkest of times, in the worst of times. And he'll shine his light right into our darkness. And God sometimes has to take us from gloom to glory. In this case, what has led to the gloom of God's people is their sin, their refusal to obey God. And so this text is going to give people hope that there will come a day when God will fulfill his promise to bring a righteous king that will lead his people rightly. The problem with Ahaz is Ahaz is a bad king not because he's not smart, not because he's not skilled, but because he's disobedient. But, but, but one day there will be a king that will supersede all other kings, and this king will lead righteously. He will lead his people to righteousness, peace, and joy. He will lead his people into this space, but that king is still to come. And so this king is promised. He was promised as a king that will come in the line of David. We find that story in 2 Samuel chapter 7 you'll find that that, that God makes a promise to King David that he will bring him a son that will come from the line of David. And and this son will make all things right. This son will come and he will rescue his people. And here's what it says in verses one through two. It says this, Isaiah nine, one through two, it says this. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathalie. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations." The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned in those living in the land of darkness. And so here's what he's saying to them. I know you're like, Zebulon, Naphtali, I don't know what's going on here. And so what you need to realize is this. Whenever the enemy came in uh, to take over Jerusalem, they had many people that would come in, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They always came to the same spot first. They always came to the same spot. Don't it seem like sometimes... When Satan comes, into your, he comes to the same area of your life, that like he knows your struggle, he knows your weak point, and, and you struggle in this particular place. Every time the enemy came, he came to this area of, of Zebulon and Naphtali, and what he is promising here in verses 1 through 2 is that God was going to bring healing to the place where his people had suffered the most. That's the beautiful thing. God God is going to come and bring healing where the people had suffered the most. They always came to this area, to the land of the Galileans. They always came to this place. And so the people there, they knew slavery and knew despair. It was a part of where they were and who they were. And so roughly 700 years later, he's saying to them that hope is going to come to this same area. What happened 700 years later? Let Matthew explain this to us. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12. 12 through 17 tells us what happened. Would you look here? When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea. Where? In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Nathalie, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near and so the people who had all this time been walking in this darkness who knew only despair jesus comes in to fulfill isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 2 and he becomes the light that the people needed darkness remember what first John chapter 1 verse 5 says God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him and so God has come and has brought light into the world through his son Jesus and so this light that he brought he brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel of Jesus Christ and so he has come in and shined the light where his people have suffered the most and they suffered in the area geographically but we suffer in the area of sin and he has come and shine the light In our darkness Jesus has fulfilled that now mind you they deserve the predicament that they kept finding themselves in that they deserve because of their disobedience they deserve to suffer but 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 God in his grace brought relief that's what I need you to understand that 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 God doesn't owe us anything that we don't deserve the grace of God but he brings it into our lives anyway that is why we should worship to God that is why we should run to church that is why we should love reading our word it is a reminder that God loves us so much that even in our mess even at our worst he comes into our lives yet while we are sinners he sends his son to die for us how can you not worship and celebrate a God like that how can you not commit your entire life to a God like that all you need to do is open the word of God and see how God has dealt with his people and then look at your own life and see how God has dealt with you when God dealt with your sin that we all need forgiveness for and a forgiveness has been accomplished by what Jesus did for us on the cross this is beautiful and so this same place that was an area of darkness for years has become a place that launched his worldwide mission Think about that. For all of these centuries, it was nothing but darkness and despair. Jesus comes and now becomes a place from which he would change the entire world. That he takes the worst, a place that no one else would want to be, no one else would want to go. No one wants to go vacation in Naphtali and Zebulun. No one wants to pay for, for a vacation to go there. No one's taking a cruise there. But this is where Jesus decides to launch his ministry, in a place where it was the most dark. That, that he uses the worst to bring his light to all nations. That, that, that's the beauty of the gospel. And now that we've benefited from it, we no longer live like people living in darkness, but we live as people living in light. Ephesians 5, 8 says this. Ephesians 5, 8 says this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. What happens when the light comes on? You can see. I don't do scary movies. I don't do scary houses at Halloween. (laughs) Don't invite me. I'm not coming. But I think I think I I went once, maybe once in college. You know what the greatest part of that haunted house was? When they turned the light on. (laughs) That gave me so much relief. It gave me hope. And some of our lives are like a haunted house. Filled with sin and darkness and despair. And God came into our lives and turned the light on. And he gives us hope. And here's what happens. When you have hope, you have light, the only response to that is joy. It does something in your heart. It changes your perspective. Like, like you literally feel better. It's not about meeting your felt needs, but when somebody brings light into a dark spot in your life, when you were a child, you crying in the dark, you scared of the dark, and somebody turns to turn the light on, you are, you are relieved. Like you're like, whoo, thank God they turned the light on, but that's what God does in this situation, in this scenario for the people of God. Look at verse 3. It says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoice before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils and so this brought a type of crazy joy that the light was now on in an area that was once darkness this ain't just some regular old kind of joy but this is some Christmas bonus unexpected money on payday type of joy this was some 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 crazy type of joy. This was outstanding type of joy that, that it is now like a harvest time that he's come in and that he's shined the light and darkness that they, they are celebrating like victors celebrate the spoils after a war. This is a Super Bowl locker room type of celebration where the underdog that was an underdog by 50 points beats the Goliath and defeats the team that everybody expected to win. And this is that type of celebration where the guys that never got no plans time on the bench or celebrating up and down like they threw the game when a touchdown pass. This is that type of celebration that the people have because they've been in, in the battle and in the darkness that long and he shines the light in signaling to them that the war is now over and we don't have to fight no more. All we need to do now is just celebrate. But why is it that we struggle with joy? Man, we struggle with joy so much as believers I want to remind you today that your joy is not predicated upon present circumstances. Your joy is based in what God has already done for you. That, that the greatest news I can tell you is not that the vaccine is ready cuz some of y'all are not going to take it anyway. The, the 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 greatest I, I know some of y'all i know y'all y'all skeptics y'all y'all conspiracy theorists right i get it i understand it's cool i, I feel you i ain't saying i'm taking it either but i'm just saying um, i'm just I'm just saying, I'm just saying i'm just saying can we keep it real can we keep it can we keep it can we keep it, we keep it a buck? all right but, but 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 what i'm saying is is that is that that even without a vaccine i still got joy here's why i know this not that i want this to happen not that we look for this to happen, but even if something does happen to us and we die, it only gets better from there. That that we can look past this life into the life to come, that we know that if we leave here, we'll be present with the Lord. That, that, That there is a joy that we have that no one else has, that no matter whether you take all of my money, you take my car, you take all of my friends, I still got Jesus, which means I still got joy. And this is the joy that they are experiencing, that they have this joy knowing that the battle has already been won. And verses 4 and 5 describes this for us. Walk with me through the text. Verses 4 through 5, here's what it says. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Everything that the enemy used to enslave us, everything that held us down, God promised to shatter it. The, the everything that the enemy used, God's saying, I'm gonna break that yoke. I'm gonna take that heavy yoke off of you and I'm gonna give you my yoke, which is easier and which is lighter. But the way I'm gonna do it is a way that's gonna surprise you. Here's why, because he uses this idea of Midian, of, of the day of Midian. Look at verse four, he says, just as you did on the day of Midian, you will read that you will like, oh, whatever, Midian, cool. All right, what's the main point of the story? But here's what I want you to know about Midian. If you think about Judges, this is, this is a reference to Judges. Gideon is uh, fighting this battle and, and these uh, Midianites are coming and they some bad boys and, and Gideon is like, I don't know what we're going to do. And God says, I know what you're going to do. You right now, you have an army of 30,000. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the strategy that's going to kill them. This is going to kill the game right here. This is going to shut everything down right here. You got 30,000. I want you to number it all the way down to 300. I bet you was like, what? I got 30,000. You mean you want me to ratchet it up to 300,000? No. I want you to decrease the 30,000 soldiers down to 300 soldiers. Now, why in the world would God want him to do something that crazy? They got hundreds of thousands of soldiers. You want me to go down to a meager 300? How, how are we gonna defeat them? God is like, I gotta decrease it. I ain't decreasing it because I think it's the smartest thing to do. I'm decreasing it because I know I'm fighting for you. And I want people to see that it's only 300. So when they see that 300 defeated the entire army of Midian, that they are no Gideon, that it did have nothing to do with you, it had everything to do with me. So I'm going to make the circumstances and the odds look look crazy ridiculous just so that people can focus their eyes on me and put their trust in me as their God, not in you, Gideon. And he's saying the same thing. I'm going to break the back on whatever has been holding you down the same way I did it supernaturally through Gideon, defeating the Midianites. It might look insurmountable to you. It might look like your parents struggled with it. It might look like your uncle struggled struggled with it. It might look like your grandparents struggled with it. It might be the story line of your family but I'm about to do something that I ain't never done before I'm about to break the back of the thing that has been causing you to struggle and holding your family back for all of these years it's going to look like it's impossible to do but the problem is and the thing is that people need to realize it's not you it's me it's not you it's me and and this is what he's saying he's saying I'm going to use the thing that they tried to defeat you with it will be burned as fuel for the fire, the thing that was used to torture you is now going to be used to serve you, that it was only used to make you stronger. This is a beautiful passage. Everything that was fighting against you is now going to serve you. This this is what it looks like. This is the picture I'm painting of, of, the, of the type of leader that's coming. Th- 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 it's going to be absolutely crazy. But if you think it got crazy about, about uh, Gideon and the Midianites, from, from 30,300, it gets even crazier. Because he's going to now tell us this, this warrior who's going to do it. I just described you a bad come. I described you somebody, you think he looked like the Incredible Hulk, right? He looked crazy, right? He looked like he got all the muscles. He looked like a Vin Diesel, the rock type of dude, right? But what's crazy is that God tells us that He's gonna bring the end of the conflict, um, but He's gonna use a child to do it. Like, that's all you got is a baby? <laughs> a baby. You see what this sin is doing to my life, and you, a baby? He said, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna use a baby. That I'm so, I'm so far superior to evil and sin that I'm going to use a child to defeat it. And so when we look at verse 6, all verse 6 is is really is a birth announcement. The birth of a child will mark the beginning of the deliverance for God's people. And what, why, would he use a, why would he use a child? Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God don't need the type of strength that we know has to be strength. God can use his weakness to, to overtake any human being strength. And that's what he's using here. He's going to use a child to overcome everything that has held us down. Here's what it says in verse six. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. The government is going to be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's what he's going to rule like. I'm going to walk through these names real quick. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, which means he's going to be wise. When you think about counselor in Hebrew terms, it means like some trusted advisor to the king. Like the king has a trusted advisor. Like, like, I, like I, watch, I watch too much news, and I was watching the new, the new president-elect, and he was announcing his cabinet and homeland security people and the uh, national security advisor and the CIA folks, and, 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 and I'm like, yeah, like I'm looking, I'm on, I'm on Wikipedia, and I'm looking up the people's resumes and stuff, like I'm, a, I'm my wife's like, you, you corny, old boy, and so I'm looking up the stuff, like she's like, you whack on me, and I'm looking up the stuff, and I'm looking at the way these people went to school, and what kind of degree they got, and I'm like, okay, he got some smart people in here, he got some smart people, he, he actually values smart people, this is the, no, the novelty, <laughs> right? This, this, the novelty in that that he would use smart people to help govern like right yeah so and I'm I'm, I'm like this is good this is good but but this wonderful count that, that's good that 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 the president elect needs and understands the need to have smart people around him you need smart people around you I need smart people around me. Like, like we will only get better if we have smart people around us to, to kind of advise us. And, and no one's an expert in every area. If you think you're an expert in every area, I got a newsflash for you. You're not very smart. And, and so I, I admire a leader says like i need some people i need some people around me but the wonderful counselor is it's not like that his name is not counselor his name is wonderful counselor which means he don't need no other advisors which means the only advisor he needs is himself he advises himself he don't need no other advisors we need other advisors romans 11 20 34 says this for who has known the mind of the lord who here has been his counselor god don't need a cabinet god is his own cabinet by himself and he will rules rule wisely and 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 intelligently And he will make the best decisions, not just for him, but for all people. That's beautiful that God don't need to consult with somebody else before he makes a decision. That God is an expert in all areas and he will be a mighty God, a mighty God. That he'll be so powerful that he'll be able to take on all the evil that is thrown at him until there is none left. That, that nobody will be able to move him out of his seat or vote him out of office, he's here to stay. He, he's not going anywhere. There ain't going to be no runoff elections. Ain't going to be no recounting. The votes don't need to be certified. They was already certified when he got up out of the grave. And, and, and here's how powerful he is. Hebrews 11.3 says this about him, that he sustains all things by the power of his word. That's crazy. He sustains all things by the power of his word. But what I love about him is he's not a selfish leader. He's not a selfish government official. He's not doing things in his own interests. He's not doing things in the own interests of his own family. He's not going to use the office to build his own thing, but he's an everlasting father, a wonderful counselor, Almighty God, an eternal father, which means he'll be father-like. Right? Him, him and the, he and the Father are one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all one, one. One God, right? And here's the thing: what it means when it tells us that He's an everlasting or eternal Father is this: is that He doesn't just look out for His own interests, but He looks out for the interests of His people. That He will sacrifice for his own people he will even sacrifice his own self by dying on the cross that that this ain't no ordinary type of leader that that he puts the needs of the people first that that, that he ain't gotta wrestle between the the congress and the senate he ain't gotta toe the party lines and and not do what's obviously right for the people of God he's not gonna see the people suffering knowing that they need a stimulus and just play games with it but if it needs to be done, he'll just get it done because he cares that much for his people. He, he's an everlasting, eternal father. But the culmination of who he is, the culmination of who he is, is that he's the prince of peace. And if there's ever time that we needed peace, it's right now. That his reign will be characterized not by bipartisanship, but by peace. His reign will be characterized by peace, that peace won't be just an ideal that the UN has has in mind, but this will be a real peace, that there will no longer be war, that we won't have to worry about who has a nuclear weapon, we won't be worrying about Russia and North Korea and all of that type of stuff, that all peace will be peace for all people, that he will remove all conflict, that there will no longer be any type of war, that we don't have to worry about any of that, all debates will be settled, there'll be one God and one kingdom and one king, and he will have... Uh, 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 His rulership will will consist of justice, righteousness, and peace. But here's a good thing about his peace. In the meantime, in the meantime, as we live in the not yet and already, he brings a peace that is possible in the presence of conflict. He brings a peace that is possible in the presence of conflict. John 14, 27, he said this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. He's talking about a different kind of peace. And here's what I love, that his peace, the one that we should be most concerned about, the one that we should be the most concerned about, this king, this child, would also be a suffering servant. And Isaiah 55 tells us something. That he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities, punished for our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. He's not talking about the absence of conflict in the world. He's talking about the enmity that was between us and God. That he has come to do away with the hostility between us and God. That I've said this before, that, that we have this idea that, that prior to us being saved, or people even now that, that, that are not saved, that God is in some neutral position with them. That, that God is indifferent to the unsaved. God is not Indifferent to the unsaved. Either you are a friend of God or an enemy of God. We have relationships where we can have relationships with people and we can say stuff like, I'm unbothered. Well, God is bothered. The good news is the Prince of Peace has brought us peace. That, That we now have peace with God that he has removed the the hostility, the hatred, the anger, the wrath of God and turned it away by his death on the cross. And now we can have a relationship and be reconciled to God. But that peace even goes further because peace here means that now we can have peace here. That Ephesians 2.14 says this, and I'm done. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That there is no longer a wall between Jew and Gentile. He has made them one new man. That that in this kingdom to come, nah, there's no Democrat, Republican, Republican, there ain't no independent party. But that we will all be one under the lordship and under the king of kings and the lord of lords. We will be one. We will be at peace with God and at peace with each other. But until then, know that the most important thing is that we have peace with God. You can turn on the news and they're going back and forth, depending on what station you watch. And, 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 and if we look for there to be peace with political parties, that's the exercise of futility. Shout out to them, but that's the exercise of futility. But, but our most important concern is to know that we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we can have peace with each other. But peace with God comes on his terms, not on ours. This will be a beautiful kingdom. And verse 7 tells us how the reign will be. It'll be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. That he will be, he will end all injustices, all systemic issues and otherwise. They will be over. There will be no more injustices. There will be no more unrighteousness. The king of kings will put all of that to an end. It will be a reign of peace. What racism will be one? What systemic infrastructures and systems? There will only be one kingdom. That is our hope. That is what we have to look forward to. But while we deal with the gloom today, know that after gloom comes glory. That after gloom comes Glory. God will see to it. The zeal, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. God will do it not because of us, but because of his love for us. That at some point, one day in the future, there'll be nothing but peace. And that peace will be found in Christ Jesus. But in the meantime, while we live in the gloom, we look forward